We turn in the Word of God this morning to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We read that in connection with Lord's Day 23 of the Catechism, which is the peak, the pinnacle of the Reformed, the Christian faith. Lord's Day 23 is the top. We've ascended the mount. Now in Lord's Day 23, we stand as high as we will ever stand. That's what Romans teaches. And especially in Romans 3 through 5, we have the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's the doctrine of Lord's Day 23. And as I read Romans 3, beginning at verse 9, I ask you to watch for the words righteousness or righteous or right. All of those are similar. And the word just or justify. They're all the same word. So I'll begin reading at verse 9. We'll read to the end of the chapter of Romans 3. The chapter began by asking what advantage a Jew has over a Gentile, and verse 2 says, much. And then it explains that, and now we begin reading at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? That is, are we Jews better than the Gentiles? No, in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat, that is ours and theirs, is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness through the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. 
By what law of works? Nay, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he a God, the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we make then void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. That's the reading of the Scripture that forms the basis of Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism, found in the back of the Psalter on page 13. Lord's Day 23, I said, is the peak of the Christian faith. It's the peak, the pinnacle, the high point of the Heidelberg Catechism. You understand that by reminding yourselves where we began in the Catechism. In Lord's Day 1, you may say, that's the peak, but Lord's Day 1 was just pointing you to this peak in Lord's Day 23. Lord's Day 1 gave you hope that there is comfort for us, great comfort to us who belong to Christ, but then immediately brought us down into the depths. The knowledge of our sin and misery and the confession that we are guilty. And then the Catechism asks, How can we be saved from that misery? And the answer is by faith, faith in Christ. And when the catechism asks what's faith, the catechism defined it as a knowledge of everything the Bible taught and a confidence that that applies to me. That's faith, a knowledge of everything in the Scripture. And then we began climbing. I believe, that's faith, in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And when we're finished now ascending that peak with all of the knowledge of the Bible summarized in the Apostles' Creed, we come back to that original question. We've confessed our faith. What does it profit you now that you believe all these things? That's Lord's Day 23. Let's read it. Question 59. What does it profit thee now that thou believest all this? that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. How art thou righteous before God? Now listen carefully. Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. So that though my conscience accuse me that I've grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil, Notwithstanding God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, God grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I never had, had, nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. 61. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? 
Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and I cannot receive and apply the same to myself in any other way than by faith only. This is the pinnacle. This is the best. It's not that it's all smooth sailing from here, that the Christian life is an easy life, but now we have reached the heart of the doctrine of the gospel. We are right before God. God looks at us and approves us. When He sees us, He does not see any sin. He says, I accept you in my beloved Son. You are mine, and you may be mine. You may come to me and find all your joy in me. That's the pinnacle. That's the heart of the Christian faith. This is what makes a church a Christian church. When I teach catechism to the older students, I often ask them to memorize a couple of things about uh, what constitutes a Reformed church. What does it mean to be Reformed? The catechism teacher really ought to ask the students, and we do, what does it mean to be a Christian? And what does it mean that a church is a Christian church? And the very simple answer to that question is this. If the church confesses that we are righteous with the righteousness of Christ Himself, that that righteousness comes to me by faith, that Christ's obedience and perfect satisfaction becomes mine through the conduit of faith alone. I don't work for that. I don't try to obey the law in order to get that righteousness. I simply look at and depend upon and trust in Christ. If you deny that, then you're not a Christian. And if we as a church compromise that in any way, we are not only not a Reformed church, but we are not a Christian church. The Apostle Paul in Romans, re-read Romans from beginning to end, and then read it in a different translation from beginning to end, and then choose another translation and read it from beginning to end. The Apostle Paul makes it very, very clear that this is the heart of the gospel. It's what identifies a church as a true church. And it's what every individual member of that church says is my precious possession. Isn't that what Paul was teaching in the passage that we read? We can say about a church that this is the mark. This is the article of a standing or a falling church. And that's Luther's language. Martin Luther said, if you want to find the church that's the true church, find this truth preached in it. Justification by faith alone. And you find a church that doesn't have that doctrine, it's not a true church. But now I want to be personal this morning and say this is your precious possession. When you stand before God and you hear God say to you, I accept you, I approve you, I don't see any sin in you, come to me and be my son and be my daughter and live with me. You say in all the world, that truth is my precious possession. Read 
just the next chapter of Romans, chapter 4, where Paul brings up two heavyweights of the Old Testament and first appeals to Abraham and said, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then he brings up David, that heavyweight, and said, David said, that man is blessed. That man is truly blessed who knows the forgiveness of sins and has not his sin imputed to him, but the righteousness of Christ himself. So let's study this truth for a little while this morning under the theme, the prophet of believing is righteousness. I remind you what Lord's Day 23 asks, what does it profit you that you believe all this? Remember everything that the Apostles' Creed taught as a summary of the Bible. That's how we're saved, by faith. What's faith? The knowledge of the Bible. Now we ask that same question again. What does it profit that you believe all this? And the answer is you are righteous. Or you are just. Or you are justified. And all those words mean the same thing. The prophet of believing is justification. Let's see what justification is. Let's see in the second place how justification is received. And then in the third place, what effects? If we are justified, what effects will that truth in us have in our lives? What does it mean? How do we receive it? And what changes will that make in us? The doctrine of justification is very simple. I want to make it as clear as I can so that even you children understand it. This is it. God looks at you, and when He sees you, He doesn't see any sin, and He says to you, you are right. Or, To use a bigger word, you are righteous. Or, to use another word, you are justified. I declare you to be free of any guilt. I see no sin in you. That's the doctrine of justification. God's mouth opens up and speaks to us and says, you're innocent. I don't see any sin in you. Now, That presents a problem to us, and the problem is laid out in the catechism because the catechism says, my conscience accuses me. It begins with that qualifier, although my conscience accuses me, nevertheless God justifies me, but this is the problem. My conscience accuses me, and it accuses me every day that I've grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them. And my conscience accuses me that I'm still inclined to all evil. That's what my conscience tells me. And that's true. That's true to me, for me, and for you. If you look at your life, look just at this morning's life. Look at what you did. Look at what you failed to do. And then examine this past week. And not only what you did or failed to do, but look at the foul fountain that produces that stream of transgression. And you say, yes, I understand that I am a sinner. I don't understand how God can look at me and say, I see no sin in you at all. The catechism does that because the gospel does that. 
This is the beautiful truth of Romans chapter 3. When the apostle was dealing with the problem of the Jews who thought they were better than the Gentiles. And when the Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles, Paul corrected them by saying, no, you're all under sin. When God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did good, he saw not one. And then in that long section that we read in Romans 3, you perhaps recognize that as a quote from the Psalms. Paul says, they're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There's not one that doeth good, no, not one. And then it speaks about their throat and open sepulcher, their tongues using deceit, the poison of asps under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's a description, not of the Gentiles, Paul says, to his cousins and uncles and brothers. That's a description of you, Jews. And so we may apply that to us today. You must not imagine that you who are born and raised in a Christian church and have Christian parents and a Christian education and all of the benefits of being in a Christian church are any different naturally than anyone else. There's no difference. We're all together guilty. That's why Paul says in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes, and then follows that by saying in verse 19, the climax of this passage, whatsoever things the law says, it says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Your mouth must be stopped. My mouth must be stopped when I claim that there's anything of merit or good in me. And all the world may become guilty before God. That's the point. Guilt. That's my need. When I stand before God, my conscience accuses me that I'm guilty. And if I'm guilty, that I'm deserving of God's wrath. I don't deserve any favor. I only ought to be punished. And there you have it. The need for justification. Now maybe you this morning come to church and say, that's not my real need. My real need is that I've been battling a particular sin and I can't seem to overcome it. Well, that's a need. It's a great need. And the gospel addresses that need too. But that's not the need. That's fundamental. This is fundamental. You need to be justified. Or maybe you say, my need this morning is that I've got all kinds of troubles in my life. I'm poor and I can't make enough money. I'm single. I'd like to be married. My spouse left me, perhaps. My spouse died. I've got all kinds of problems with my children, disappointments here, and discouragements there. My real need is that. And also we say about that need, that's a great need. Those are troubles that the gospel addresses, but not first. The gospel first addresses this need of yours that you and I are guilty. Guilty and worthy of being condemned. So be very clear, we're not guilty then because we used to transgress, and now that we're Christians, we don't or don't very much anymore. That's not true, although that also has an element of truth to it. One of my favorite Psalter numbers is 217. Remember not, O God, the sins of long ago. 
and perhaps all of you who are getting at all older and reflect upon your past have that. You look at the past and you say, God, I did that. That's the kind of life I lived. Oh, God, remember not the sins of long ago. That's why when I was younger and one of the seminary professors said that the older you get, the more sinful you become, I became very angry at that. I didn't understand it. I thought to myself, no, the older that you get, the, the older you get, the better you become. And though there's some truth to that, that there's progress in sanctification, what that professor meant was the older you become, the more sensitive you are to your present sin and more aware you are of your past sin. Remember not, O oh God, the sins of long ago. But that's not the need that we have here primarily. The need is our present guilt and our present depravity and our present failures. And then to sharpen the point even more, the need is not that we once in a while let a bad word slip, do something that was foolish, about which we're ashamed and humbled and embarrassed. And the need is not even that we sometimes fall in a great and heinous sin, although sometimes we do, just like Peter did and David did. And all of that is real. All of that is a part of this, but we want to get to the root, and the root is this. Today, my conscience accuses me that I am presently still inclined to all evil, that today and tomorrow and last week and next week, I'm going to grossly transgress all of the commandments of God and keep none of them in the way that pleases God, and that can be a part of my righteousness before Him. That's the present reality that explains my need for justification. I need God to say to me, you're right, because everything I see is wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. And now, children, do you you see the word right and righteous and righteousness? Those three words all start with the word right. And I say, when I look at myself, I'm wrong. And I'm not only wrong in what I say and what I do and what I think, but I'm wrong in my nature. And God comes in the gospel of justification and says, but you're right. You're righteous. I declare you to be just. I declare you to be innocent and free of all sin and guilt and shame. So when the catechism says that that's true of me today, presently, that's not to be explained as though we outwardly break all of the commandments of God every day, and it doesn't mean that when we outwardly break them, we're impenitent in them. Why, Christ is in us after all. He is. He lives in me and you, so that we guard ourselves from open transgression often, those kinds of gross sins that make us infamous in the world. And when we commit them, we're sorry. No, the catechism is not intending to say that when it explains our present condition. It just means this. When you live, you sin. You are a sinner, and I am a sinner, And even when I do good works, not one of those good works is not stained 
with sin so that I may never present my works to God and say to God, God justify me because of what I've done. And if you still have a problem with that, and just ask yourself a couple of very simple questions. Think back to the Ten Commandments that we read this morning in the first table of the law that says, love God with everything you are. Love Him. Put Him first in everything you do. What was your first thought when you woke up this morning? Was it of God? Did you put Him first? And your second thought, did you put Him first? And you say, but I needed to think about making breakfast and what clothes I was going to wear, but why did you make breakfast and why did you think about what clothes you were going to wear? Did you put God first? Did you love Him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? And every one of us, if we are honest, needs to say, I didn't. I thought about myself. And then go to the second table of the law. You probably, most of you, have a neighbor in your home, a family member. And even if you don't, think about another neighbor. Did you think about your neighbor before you thought about yourself? Did you husbands think about pleasing your wife before you thought about pleasing yourself? And did, did you wives, vice versa? And children, when you woke up this morning, what was first in your mind? What were the first words that came out of your mouth? Were they God-glorifying words and thoughts? Did you put God first? That's the question. And all of us need to admit we didn't. And so, I have to say, there's something wrong with me. Something fundamentally wrong. And yet God says, I don't see any of that. You're righteous. You're right. You're justified. That's because God takes a righteousness that we call in the Christian church an alien righteousness, that is, a foreign righteousness that doesn't come from the sphere of my life and grants and imputes that righteousness to me so that when God sees me, I'm covered by the righteousness that was given to me from Him. It's His righteousness. And when you read and reread and reread the book of Romans, then look out for that. And listen to what Paul says at the very beginning of the book. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in the gospel is declared the righteousness of God. The power of God unto salvation is in the gospel. Why? Because it declares God's righteousness. There it is, out there, not here in me. And God grants and imputes that to me. Look with me at Romans 3 and the verses that we read, if you would again. The apostle emphasizes that in this section. Verse 21 of Romans 3. The righteousness of God. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. Verse 25, to, de to declare His righteousness. Verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. It's not yours, naturally. You don't find it in the sphere of your life. You need to go outside of you. And that's why we call it an alien righteousness that's granted and imputed to me from outside of myself. And that righteousness, God worked out in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let me explain now briefly a few words in the catechism. God grants and imputes to me the perfect, here's the first word, satisfaction. Here's the second word, righteousness. And here's the third, holiness of Christ. And then a couple of lines later, it talks about the obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. So you have four words, satisfaction, Christ satisfied by being punished for your sin, that perfect satisfaction becomes yours. Righteousness. Christ was upright. Christ was just. Christ was never wrong in everything, anything he thought or said or did. Righteousness. That righteousness of Christ becomes your righteousness. And holiness. He was pure. He was spotless. His nature was perfect. And obedience. When he woke up in the morning on Sunday, his Sabbath, he didn't think of himself first. He thought of you. And said to himself, I've got to go to the cross for you. I must die for you. I must suffer for you. He never thought of himself first. He thought of others first. And he loved God with everything that was in him. That obedience... That perfect obedience that was active, that's righteousness, that's holiness, that's obedience. And passive, that's satisfaction where he hanged there and submitted to the punishment of God upon him. His active obedience and passive obedience, all of that righteousness outside of us now comes to us by the gift and grace of God. Our righteousness is a righteousness without the deeds of the law. People of God, over against your conscience that accuses you daily, there's one righteousness and one righteousness that can stand for you before God, and that is the righteousness of God in Christ. So the article of a standing and falling church goes uh, of justification by faith goes right along with the article of total depravity, doesn't it? If you are not totally depraved by nature, you can, uh, you can do something good. That is, if you have some good in you. And then what you're going to do is present to God when you die and stand before the judge Christ's righteousness and supplement it with your righteousness. But there's no way for you to do anything that pleases God because of total depravity by nature. And maybe the best way to make that plain is to be very obvious and say, what's the best work you've done yet today? And say, that doesn't account for your righteousness. You got up this morning, you said, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to sing. I'm going to praise God. I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to speak good words to the other members of the congregation and encourage those that are discouraged and express prayers for the others. That's a good work, isn't it? Here, singing, listening to the preaching, opening the Bible, confessing that your mind wanders at time, but wanting to focus. That's the best work, if we may compare works. Do you know what? That's not your righteousness before God. Your works do not make you approved before God. 
You're going to go home this afternoon and struggle to keep the Sabbath day. And you're going to keep it. You're going to read. You're going to meditate. You're going to come back to church in this evening and worship. That's not your righteousness before God. Your righteousness before God comes from outside of you and is granted and imputed to you as a free gift. Remember the Pharisee? He was thankful to God for what God gave him. He would have credited God for the ability to serve God. But then he took those works of his, his works, and presented them to God. And he went home unjustified. And the publican, who beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, he went home justified because he came before God with empty hands and not one work that he had performed. Justification is God's gift to you of declaring to you from his mouth to your ears, I see no sin in you. You're right in my sight. I must be careful because that clock says quarter past ten. But it's not quarter past ten. My second point asks the question, how does that righteousness and gift become mine? How does it become mine? And the answer is twofold. God imputes that righteousness to me, and he does that in the second place by faith. So those are the two parts of the second point of the sermon. Now, God, the catechism says, grants and imputes Christ's righteousness to me. Christ earned it, he prepared it, but if it doesn't become mine, it doesn't do me any good. I must receive that righteousness. And there are two answers to the question, how do I receive it? One is, God imputes it to me, and the other is, He imputes it to me by faith. By faith. Now, I'm committed, as I said earlier, that the children are able to understand this doctrine. And the word impute you don't use very often. So I want to use another, a number of examples to help you understand what imputation is. Impute. Imagine, children, your teacher, when he examines you, not only what you did for homework or did on a test or a quiz, he examines that quiz but he also examines you and your conduct. Now, you know that your teacher has a record book in which he puts all the grades, not just of what you did in the test or quiz or homework, but of how you conducted yourselves. And after he's examined you, he's got to write down what you did. Did you get an A, a B, or an F? And were you good today, or did you talk when you shouldn't have talked? And the teacher, you just imagine him writing down the grades in his record book. And when he looks at you, he's going to judge you according to what he put down in his book. And when your parents come to teacher's parent-teacher's conference, he's going to tell you what he has written in that book. How did you do? Were you right or were you wrong in your tests and in your conduct? Or imagine, now you older children perhaps know what a credit card is. You go to the store with your credit card and you buy a basket full of 
produce or things that you want to purchase. And you go to the counter, and the cashier behind the counter scans every one of those purchases with that bar, and you hear a little bleep. And what happens with that little bleep is that there's being recorded now electronically what you purchased, and then you give them the credit card by which you don't pay, but commit to paying. I'm going to pay. And you may be sure that the store has a record of what you must pay. And at the end of the month, your bill comes, and you must see to it that the payment for all those purchases goes to your credit card company, and they send it then to the store. You're not going to get away with getting purchases for free. There's a record of that. And both what the teacher does with your grades and conduct and what the store does with your purchases is impute. Impute. They write it down and record it so that you pay. Pay. Or maybe to be positive about it, there's another imputation, and that is perhaps Tuesday morning you employees are going to go back to work And you take a time card and put it in that machine, and it records when you got there, or your boss notices that you appear, and he writes it down that you're there, so that at the end of the day, when at four or five o'clock in the evening, you quit, he writes that time down too, and at the end of the month, he's going to pay you for what you did. There's an imputation there also. The best illustration of imputation is what a judge does. When you stand before the judge and he examines the evidence and he makes a decision about what you did or didn't do. Maybe a jury helps him make that decision. But at the end of the day, the judge records either guilt or innocent. And that's God in heaven. The great judge looks at you, examines your life, and makes a declaration. He records it in your conscience. He tells you what he's going to do. It's like you sitting by the side of your teacher when the teacher grades your test and you watch that teacher write the grade down in the book. You don't have to wait till report cards come. You see it every time you do something. And God does that with you. Every time you do something, you hear God's testimony in your ear that says, righteous. He grants and imputes to me the righteousness of Christ. So he speaks about my legal standing before him. You mustn't imagine that justification, making us just, declaring us just. You mustn't imagine that being made righteous has to do with God changing us inside so that we do good works. There is that work, you know. And that, as you catechism students remember, is called sanctification. But first is justification, where God says to you, and you hear it in your ear, I declare you righteous. I write down, when your conscience says you ought to get an F, I write down an A. And when your conscience daily accuses you that you ought not only to get an F, but a zero, and you ought to be expelled and banished and punished forever, God says to you, I give you a perfect score. There's nothing wrong in you. I don't see any sin in you. And you imagine to yourself, how can that be? 
And the answer is simple. There's an alien righteousness that God imputes to your account. It's as though you go to a store and make a purchase, and the cashier puts all your purchases behind his back, and not one of them is recorded by that little computer scanner. Not one. It's as though you didn't study for the test, and you got all the answers wrong, and at the end of the day, you get a perfect A. That's what God does to us in justification, and He shows that to us every time we pray, God, forgive my sins. And God is doing that today. He's showing you today that He writes down for you. Now, you put your name in the blanks in this sentence. I, God says, give you a perfect A. That's justification. I give you 100%. There's nothing wrong. I accept you in my beloved. What he did, satisfying for sin, and what he did, obeying all of the commandments and thinking of God and the neighbor first, what he did is given to me as mine. Justification. I'm right. Not in myself, but in Christ. And then the second part of this second point is that that comes to me by faith. And so the Catechism says, in as much as I embrace the same benefit with a believing heart. How are you righteous before God? Only by a true faith. And then 61, why do you say that you're righteous by faith only? Not because God accepts me because he sees my faith. Because faith is not the cause of my justification. It's the conduit through which comes to me the righteousness of another. I don't say, God, see me. I believe all these things. I have faith. No, I say, God... Thanks for the gift of faith through which Christ's innocence and holiness becomes mine. By believing, and by believing alone. I want to conclude this point this morning by warning me and warning you. Don't try to stand before God in any other way than by faith Don't try to present your works to God as what will make God pleased with you. What makes God pleased with you is His Son. Don't justify yourself. Don't make all kinds of excuses with regard to what you do. It wasn't really that bad. I didn't really do everything that you said I did. Don't self-justify. Find justification in Christ. Don't blame your wife for your weaknesses. Don't blame your husband for your shortcomings. Children, don't blame your parents for what you do wrong or your teachers or anyone else. Find your righteousness by admitting that you are a sinner, there's nothing good in you, and that your righteousness is in Him. 
Be careful. Be careful in the second place that you don't try to self-medicate. Perhaps we may put it that way. Where when your conscience accuses you, you don't flee to Christ, but to the cupboard where the bottle is. Or the pills are. Or to the store where you can buy something else and satisfy yourself with a new purchase and be happy for a few minutes until you realize that that's not what gives you a conscience that's clear. Be very careful, people of God. And be careful also, as I said, that you don't say, I have faith. And that's what God approves, my faith. No, faith is not a cause of your justification. It's the conduit through which an alien righteousness becomes yours. Be very, very careful. When you understand this truth properly, then you're going to start by saying the difference that a justified person and an unjustified person have is in the first place, the justified person doesn't boast. That's how this section ends, doesn't it? Verse 27. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. I can't boast of any of my works because it's not my works that justify me. It's Christ that justifies me. And when I show you my A, you're not going to say, but my A is better than your A. We're both going to say, we got that A from Him. And we both deserve to be condemned in hell. We're no different than the drug addict in the gutters of San Francisco. That's who we are by nature. I have nothing to boast of. Not when we get to heaven and see that we're perfect and not when we leave this sanctuary and go to talk outside in the narthex either. I'm unworthy of any blessing. And I must show that to you. And when I don't boast, that's the beautiful thing. I not only have peace with God because I'm justified by faith. That's coming in Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. But let that sink in most. Don't go to bed tonight afraid of God. Be at peace with Him through faith in His Son. Trust His Son. And then God says, grace, mercy, and peace be to you. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Being justified by faith, we have peace with each other too. When I don't boast and you don't boast, and none of us imagines that he's better than anyone else in the congregation, we're going to be able to live in peace. Forgive each other freely, even as God forgives us. Confessing our faults one to another and praying one for another that we may be healed. That's the kind of life that you live in the congregation and the difference that it's going to make when you understand that justification and righteousness are freely granted and imputed to me through the conduit of faith which God gives to me as a gift. And what a marvelous life in the congregation we can live 
if we understand that truth. God is good and the justifier of them that believe. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Grant now by the gospel and impute now to our account perfection, satisfaction, obedience, and holiness of Christ. We are worthy of nothing. We are ashamed of our lives and of our natures too. But we thank Thee. Give us joy, Father, so that in joyful exaltation we may praise Thee in all of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.